Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning with verse 9 and going through verse 13. Mark, chapter 1, verse 9 through verse 13, the baptism and temptation of the servant king. Uh, we saw last week that uh, Mark has as an agenda to tie the Lord Jesus in his work to the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. He is a king, and that will be made very clear tonight through the declaration that takes place at his baptism given by his father. But he is a very particular kind of king. He is a servant king. In fact, he is the suffering servant of the Lord kind of king. And tonight we will see that that is set forth clearly at the beginning of his ministry, and that indeed the remainder of Mark's gospel will unfold how this servant uh, indeed serves those who need to have a right relationship with the one true and living God, but how he serves on the way to the suffering uh, of a Roman cross on a hill called Calvary. And so tonight we see two great events in his life brought together that both are watershed moments, and interestingly they happen in very close proximity. One is his baptism, and the other is his temptation. And so the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 9 reads, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, literally torn apart, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and angels ministered to him." Those of us who have walked with the Lord for any period of time know that His ways are not our ways, and often His thoughts are not our thoughts. Indeed, I think we would agree with the prophet Isaiah who said in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His ways are higher, and His thoughts are higher still. In other words, often God will surprise us. Many times God's ways are very mysterious to us. They, they sometimes, if we're honest, just seem downright strange. You, you want to step back and say, God, what in the world are you doing? I would not have done it this way had I been God. Well, fortunately, you're not God. Fortunately, I'm not God. Uh, God's ways may be mysterious, but God's ways are always perfect and good. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, you see the mysterious, strange, odd sort of ways in which God does what He does. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, he is the Christ, 
based upon chapter 1 and verse 1. And yet his public ministry starts not in a thriving metropolis like Jerusalem or perhaps even the capital city of Rome, but rather it starts in the rugged wasteland of the Judean wilderness near a thing called the Dead Sea. It starts not with a great press conference, but with a baptism, a, a humbling event. And it starts not with a parade, but with 40 days of fasting and 40 days of solitude further into the wilderness in a very dangerous place where he is tempted by the arch enemy of God, a demon leader by the name of Satan. I would submit to you tonight that's a very unexpected and very surprising beginning for one that in verse 3 is said to be the coming of the Lord. In verse 7, he is one mightier than anyone who has ever or will come again. In verse 8, he is the one who will baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 1, he is indeed declared to be the Christ, the Son of God. If I had been in charge of the beginning of his public ministry, I think I would have done it in a different kind of a way. But then again, I need to be reminded that God's ways are not our ways. And God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But I do agree with what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. The will of God is always good. Uh, The will of God is always acceptable, and the will of God is always perfect. And so what do we learn from these two uh, markers in the life of the Lord Jesus, his baptism and his temptation? Well, number one, the baptism of Jesus was a declaration of his sonship. In chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says that he came uh, in those days from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Most likely he comes to John during the middle or maybe even the latter part of John's ministry. To to be honest, we cannot be certain. We cannot be sure. Uh, He comes to be, the Bible says, baptized, which is such a significant event in the life of Jesus. It's recorded in all four of the Gospels. We find it in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. We find it in Luke 3, 21 and 22. And we even find it in John's Gospel in chapter 1, verses 28 through 34. Furthermore, Mark wishes to make a big deal out of the issue of baptism. The word occurs in verse 9 for the sixth time in the first nine verses of the book. Theologians have been baffled by this event literally throughout all of church history. Why in the world is Jesus baptized? Uh, After all, the the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3, verse 14, makes it clear that John the Baptist was against the idea. And indeed, I think Mark would tell us he had a pretty good reason for being against it. After all, he says there in chapter 1, verse 7, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, by his sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and to loose. And so it would seem to me that John has a pretty good argument for not wanting to be uh, the one to baptize Jesus. In fact, he says, if anyone needs to be baptized, I, John the Baptist, need to be baptized by you, Jesus. But Matthew also records for us in chapter 3, verse 15, that Jesus said this, However, this must take place for us to fulfill all righteousness. So there's your answer. Jesus is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Now, if you're like Danny Aiken, you say, but wait a minute. I still don't understand. Okay, he is baptized to fulfill all righteousness, but what does that mean? Well, as we walk through these verses and consider also what we learn from other passages of Scripture, I think we can tease out at least seven different things. 
that we learn from and that are significant with relationship to the baptism of Jesus. And if I were to summarize it before I tease out these seven different facets, I, I would say something like this. The baptism was the beginning of his humiliation as he faithfully submits to the Father's will and willingly identifies himself with sinful humanity. So on the one hand, he is willingly saying, I will submit to the will of my Father and humble myself, whatever his purpose or plan for my life will be. On the other hand, he is identifying himself with those that he came to save. I agree with my friend Mark Dever who said that Jesus being baptized is no more out of place than the Son of God hanging on a cross at Calvary. He doesn't really belong at either place. And yet he is there not for his benefit, but for yours and for mine. And so the baptism is a declaration of his sonship. Now, what are these seven truths that we can tease out about his baptism? I'll move through them quickly. Number one, it did inaugurate his public ministry. The Bible says in verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He comes from Nazareth, the sole mention of his hometown in Mark's gospel. Uh, if you study uh, uh, ancient history, you study New Testament history, you know that, that Nazareth was a small backwater town from, from nowhere. Uh, the fact of the matter is Galilee was despised as well because it was so far removed from the holy city of Jerusalem. Furthermore, by this time... It is infested by these creatures called Gentiles. And so you have this region that is held in great disrespect by most Orthodox Jews. And then you take this backwater town called Nazareth. In other words, he's a nobody from nowhere. And yet the Bible says he comes down from the north makes his way south to the east, and he finds John, and he is baptized by him there in the Jordan. Thus, he begins his public ministry, probably around the age of 30, maybe in his early 30s, no older than that. Uh, most Bible scholars, most New Testament scholars would uh, draw the conclusion that Jesus would probably have a public ministry from three uh, to three and a half years. And so basically the time has come for the servant king to ascend to the public stage. Now, another question, why the wilderness? That why is the wilderness such an important theme in the beginning of Mark's gospel? The answer is the wilderness is often where God has met his people. And the wilderness is often the place where God has done a great work in and for his people. In fact, uh, God himself says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, listen to this, it's a prophecy. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, Israel. I, I will draw her. I will bring her into the wilderness. And there I will speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there, and, and the valley of Achor is a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and don't miss this, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. You're going to hear me say a number of times uh, in our study that in the Gospel of Mark, as well as especially in Matthew, uh, Jesus is something of a new Moses, and he is leading a new Exodus. And, of course, the Exodus brought them across the Jordan. 
And the exodus was something that led them through the wilderness. And so once more, God is working in this kind of a way with a new exodus and a new and better Moses, the eternal Son of God. So it inaugurates uh, his public ministry. Secondly, it identifies him with sinful humanity. He comes where there are people who, as we saw in verse 4 or uh, in verse 5, they are confessing their sins. They are repenting of their sins, and they are being baptized as evidence of a change in their life's orientation. Now, we need to stop right there and take note of something. Jesus, in this text, never repents of anything. In fact, Jesus, in this text and all of the rest of the Bible, neither repents or confesses sin. Why? Because he had no sin. As Hebrews 4.15 says, he was an always tempted as we were, yet without sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. And so even though he comes to be baptized, he doesn't come repenting. He doesn't come confessing his sin. Rather, he comes to align himself, if you like, or he comes to identify himself with those he came to save. Like Moses. In the first Exodus, remember, Moses was willing to lay down his life. God, God says, I'm going to wipe out the Hebrew children, and I'll start all over with you. And Moses actually pleads with the Lord and says, no, you, you take my life instead of theirs. Of course, God did not do it to Moses. He will do it with his own son. And so like Moses identifying with the Hebrew children in the wilderness, Christ comes and identifies himself. He does not set himself apart from those he came to save. Number three, it also associates him with John's ministry. Jesus, as we have seen, does not hesitate to connect himself and identify himself with John the Baptist. Of course, we recognize from the earlier writings in chapter one that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. Furthermore, he is going to endorse John's message of repentance because the first words out of the mouth of Jesus, which we will see next week when he begins his preaching, is repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Furthermore, Jesus was not embarrassed to identify himself uh, with his cousin. Uh, the fact is, we've already seen that Jesus says that no one born naturally of a woman was greater than John the Baptist. No, Jesus gladly validates the ministry of John, and he endorses the ministry of his cousin. It associates him with John's ministry. Number four, it demonstrates his approval by his father. If you look at verse 10, the Bible says, and immediately... Coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, and we'll stop there and then move on in just a moment. Uh, Jesus immediately comes up out of the water. Now, you ought to mark that word immediately. That word is perhaps the favorite word of Mark in his gospel. It will occur no less than 42 times. Interestingly, the word only occurs 12 times in the rest of the New Testament. So Mark will use that word almost four times more than the other 26 books of the New Testament combined. The text says he, he comes up and something better is going to come down upon him. But don't miss this. Now watch it very carefully. He saw the heavens and the, the New King James says parting. Literally, the word means to rent. 
It means to, to tear open or even to rip apart. Now, this is fascinating. I did not learn this until I was working through this text just a, a couple of weeks ago. That word, to tear apart, only occurs one other time in Mark's Gospel. In chapter 15 and verse 38, when the Son of God was crucified and the Father steps in and takes the curtain in the temple... And what does the Bible says? It was rent. It was ripped apart. It was torn in two. How? From top to bottom. In other words, Mark says something cataclysmic is happening now, just like something cataclysmic happens at the crucifixion. The Father, if you like, supernaturally intervenes and in an eschatological moment declares by action that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Interestingly, once more, what takes place here was predicted in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1, the Bible says, Oh, that you would rent the heavens, that you would, listen to this, come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, and so Isaiah the prophet was moved by the Spirit to anticipate a day when the heavens would be rent and God himself would come down. So God, in cataclysmic power, comes down in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. The, the tearing apart of the heavens signifies a very significant moment in history and a very firm affirmation of the servant king. In other words, the Father in action gives His approval concerning His Son. But in just a moment, we will see He follows it up with one of the most startling and important declarations in all of the Bible. Yes, it demonstrates the approval of His Father. Number five, it also reveals the triune nature of God. Adrian Rogers used to say it this way, The doctrine of the Trinity is not beyond logic and reason, just above it. I used to say when I would teach systematic theology that the doctrine of the Trinity is, is not uh, irrational. Uh, it is supra-rational. It transcends our reasoning. How can God be both three and one and one in three? Well, I can explain it, but the Bible clearly testifies to it. If you look at the text, you see in verse 9, the Son is baptized. You see in verse 11 that the Father is going to speak. And you see also in verse 10, the Spirit descending into or upon Him. And so like the ending of Matthew's Gospel where we are told to make disciples and baptize them in the name singular of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of Mark's Gospel, He reveals to us through action the triune God as a confirming witness to the identity of Jesus the Son. Number six, the baptism shows his total dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It says there in verse 10, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens being torn apart and the Spirit descending upon him like, note it's a, 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 a simile here, like a dove. The Spirit's not a dove. He comes down like a dove. Now, once more, Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 gives us a promise that the Spirit would be upon the Messiah. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
That promise that you find in Isaiah 42, 1 is elaborated in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 2. Listen to what Isaiah wrote there. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. That, of course, was David's father. And a branch shall go out of his roots. And, listen, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Mark says the spirit descends like a dove. Again, not literally a dove. It comes down in gentleness and purity and meekness. And it says the spirit came and the, the New King James says the spirit descended upon him. But it is interestingly the preposition ice in Greek. And some uh, commentators noted it could be translated that the, that the spirit came into him. In other words, the Messiah is filled by the Spirit and equipped for His ministry. Now, let me just digress for just a moment. There is nothing here in this text that would legitimize what is sometimes called adoptionistic Christology. So that's a mouthful. Well, let me unwrap it very quickly. Christology, working backwards, of course, deals with the person and work of Christ. But here, His person... And the word adoption means exactly what it sounds like. It means to take one and move them now into a new status of sonship. In other words, there were uh, false teachings in the early church, the Ebionites, for example. They're false teachers today. We call them Jehovah's Witnesses uh, and sometimes even certain facets of Mormonism that would argue that Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, but that He became the Son of God at... His baptism. In fact, there was even an ancient cult that said that Jesus the man was baptized and therefore was adopted as God's son temporarily. And then at the cross, that adoption, if you like, was undone because what uh, do you hear Jesus saying from the cross? But my 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 God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? So the man Jesus was born, adopted temporarily by the Spirit, and then the man Jesus died alone on the cross at Calvary. That is foreign to the whole thrust of this text. Uh, he is already declared the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He doesn't become the Son of God. He is the Son of God. But the Spirit comes down upon him to equip him and empower him for his ministry while he lives on this earth as a man. In other words, to say it another way, when the Son of God took upon Himself full humanity, He did not surrender His deity, but He did for a temporary period of time lay aside His glory. He did for a period of time choose to live a life in absolute, total dependence upon His Father through the ministry and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I like the way that, that John Piper says it. When Jesus was baptized along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. And so the Spirit comes upon him and it illustrates his dependence upon his Father through the Spirit during his incarnate state. 
Number seven, and I think most significantly, the baptism of Jesus declares the type of Messiah he would be. One of the most important verses, I believe, in all the Bible is found there in verse 11. Then a voice came from heaven, and here's what that voice said. You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Many times people read that verse, and they just say, oh, it's just an affirmation of his sonship, and an affirmation that God loves him, and an affirmation that God is pleased with him. And that is all true, but a far too superficial reading of the text. I think, first of all, you should note that this particular statement is echoed again uh, in uh, chapter 9 and verse 7 when he has the experience of the transfiguration. But as is often the case in Mark's gospel, and really for that matter in all the gospels, what you actually have here in verse 11 is a bringing together of three major Old Testament texts that are just filled to the brim with significance. You see it there in your notes. The verse could literally read, you are the son of me, the beloved in you I am well pleased. You are my son. That is a citation of Psalm 27, one of the great messianic king psalms. And so he is in essence saying to Jesus, you are the Messiah king. You are the greater son of David who will rule the nation. In fact, if you really want to catch all that's going on here, go home tonight and get out your Bible and read all of Psalm 2. Then take your Bible and read all of Genesis 22. And then take your Bible one more time and read all of Isaiah 42. And you'll catch the the full thrust of what is going on here in the conflation of these three great statements. So, you are my son, Psalm 2-7. You are the Messiah King who is going to rule the nations. You are the beloved. You could translate it, the one I love. Clearly an allusion to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2 where... God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son you love, and take him and and sacrifice him. And so the son that he was called to sacrifice bears that same weight. Indeed, the, the idea of the beloved one, one commentator said, could be understood easily as the one and only. And then the final phrase, in you I am well pleased, is Isaiah 42. One, it is the first of the suffering servant songs that reaches its climax in that great Isaiah chapter 53 where the Bible teaches us that the servant of the Lord is crushed for the sins of the world by his father. And so you see what's going on here? God is saying to Jesus, you are the Messiah King and you will rule the nations. You are my only son, my beloved son, and you will realize your Messiahship and you will receive your kingdom. But you will do so as the suffering servant of the Lord. The first century was virtually devoid of that theology. They had read, as we often do, the Bible selectively. And so they did not have a full-orbed understanding that the Messiah King would realize his kingdom through suffering. In fact, even the disciples didn't get it until after the resurrection. And so this declaration by the father of his love for his son cannot be overstated. It cannot be overlooked. Indeed, no prophet ever heard words like these. In fact, Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses was called a servant of God. Aaron was called a chosen one. David, a man after God's own heart. But very interestingly, only the nation Israel in Exodus 4.23... 
and the king of Israel as their leader and representative in Psalm 2-7. Only they are ever called God's son. But now both the nation and also the king are united in one in the person of the servant king, Jesus Christ. And so his baptism makes it clear that we cannot doubt, we must not doubt, that he is indeed the Son of God, a clear declaration of his deity. You might be tempted, as I am, to say, well, I'm just curious, does, does Mark then follow this up in any kind of a way through the remainder of the book to demonstrate that he actually is God, that he, he does that which only God can do? And yeah, the answer is uh, he sure does. In 2.5, he forgives sins. Only God can do that. In 140, he heals the sick. In 124 and 5, he cast out demons. In 228, he's said to be the Lord over the Sabbath. In chapter 6, he will raise the dead. And in chapter 16, he himself will rise from the dead. So the bottom line of the baptism is something like this. You are the promised Messiah King. You are uniquely my son. In you, I take great delight. You are the love of my life. And you are going to receive a kingdom from me. But the kingdom will come not in the way that popular opinion thinks. No, the kingdom will come through a crushing, painful, and humiliating death. Now, the $1 billion question is, will Jesus submit to being that kind of Savior? Which leads us then to the second point, the temptation of Jesus was a declaration of war. I won't chase this too far, but often when uh, people preach on the temptation of Jesus, what they say is not true. Uh, What they say is true, but what they say is not what the text is about. And Mark's gospel actually helps us see this better than anything else. You say, what are you getting at? Well, many times people will preach on the temptation of Jesus and they will say, here's how you and I learned how to deal with temptation. And we can learn some things in that regard, but the fact of the matter is, the temptation of Jesus is not about how you and I deal with temptation. Really, it is a war in the wilderness that is taking place, and what's at stake is, will Jesus agree to be the kind of Savior that his Father says he is going to be? Will he agree to receive his kingdom through painful, humiliating suffering? You see, the commissionings of God often do follow a time of testing. This is true for you and for me, and it was true also for Jesus. Will you and I continue to trust and obey even when God takes us from the mountaintop and throws us down into the valley? Will you and I stay faithful to God when we are removed from a spiritual high and thrown into waters that nearly drowned us? That that often happens in our lives, doesn't it? It happened in the life of our Savior. Indeed, James Edwards says we see Jesus and Israel now reduced to one. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is a second Adam. He is a new Israel. Will he succeed where they have failed? And so verse 12 begins immediately. Immediately. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Well, wait a minute. Time out. I thought he was already in the wilderness. Oh, yeah, now he's in the wilderness wilderness. I mean, he's now in deep stuff. He's way back in there now. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And then Mark throws in this really weird statement. And he was with the wild beast. And the angels ministered to him. The temptation of Jesus is recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 
Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. But Mark gives us only a two-verse summation of what I call the war in the wilderness. In other words, this is now where the battle really begins. This is now when everything will begin to rage as we move toward a Roman cross and an, an empty tomb. In fact, I say it this way in my own notes. Here is Christ in mortal, eternal combat for the souls of men. This is what is at stake in the temptation. Not how you and I deal with temptation, but will he succeed where Israel failed? Will he succeed where Adam failed? Because if he doesn't, he loses, and we're lost. He loses, we're lost, no hope. So what do we see? Two very important lessons that can be applied to us. Number one, Jesus was submissive to the Spirit. Immediately, the Bible says, the Spirit drove him. It's the, the Greek word exbalo. That doesn't mean anything to me. What well, means to impale. It means to cast. It's almost the idea that the Spirit picked him up and threw him out there as quickly and as fast as he could. In fact, Mark will use that same word 11 times in this gospel to talk about Jesus casting out demons. So just like he would throw a demon out of someone like the gathering demoniac in Mark chapter 5, the Spirit picks him up and throws him where? Out into the wilderness. This is not accidental. This isn't happenstance. This isn't a, a chance meeting. It was a divine appointment scheduled by the Father and implemented by the Spirit. Now, once more, I would submit this is not what you and I should expect. He's now been declared at his baptism to be the Messiah King. I think it's time for a parade, not myself. I think it's time for a major press conference in Jerusalem, maybe on the steps there of the temple. That's what I would have done, but no, no, no. The baptism, the voice from heaven, no reception, no celebration, but a descent further into the wilderness. And we're going to see in a moment, in essence, he is invading even more foreign, evil, enemy territory. In other words, the son has a job to do, the servant king has a job to do, and so the Spirit immediately compels him to engage this assignment. As one man said, our king, our commander-in-chief goes out to fight in the dirty, filthy trenches just like us. He turns back the enemy. He provides hope and salvation and a pattern for us to do the same. He was submissive to the guidance of the Spirit to go where you would not have expected him to go following such a high spiritual moment. But then secondly, he was also engaged by Satan. The Bible says in verse 30 he was there in the wilderness, the deep wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him. Forty days in the wilderness, the deep wilderness. Forty days recalls Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It recalls Moses' 40 days on Mount Sinai. It recalls Elijah's 40 days at Mount Horeb. Again, here we see a, a new Adam, a, a new Israel, a better Moses, a superior Joshua. Who, who does he encounter there? First time in Mark's gospel, some individual, some personality that the Bible calls Satan. I would submit to you that, that Mark evidently believed in a real personal devil. 
Best I can tell, Jesus also believed in a real personal devil. After all, a question to be raised here. Where did Matthew, Mark, and Luke get their information about the temptation? I mean, there was only one person out there besides Satan, and that's Jesus. And so either he was hallucinating or either he made it up or he actually did encounter someone he really does believe exists. In fact, Jesus is quite clear in the Bible that he believes in this malignant individual. In John 8:44, he says this, The devil was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, where he is a liar and the father of it. In other words, Jesus says he is both a murderer and a liar by his very nature. There are two prominent names for the archenemy of God. He is called Satan, a word that occurs 36 times in the New Testament. It means the adversary. He's also called the devil. That word occurs 34 times in the New Testament. That means the accuser. And so this one who is the adversary, this one who is the accuser, this one who is the leader of demons, meets our king and of all places the desert. Note, in contrast, the wilderness, not a garden. The wilderness for 40 days of fasting. The wilderness alone with no companions. The wilderness with wild animals. Now, again, that particular phrase drives commentators nuts. And you pick up a commentary on Mark's gospel and they come up with all sorts of interesting, I'll be sweet tonight, interesting, strange answers as to why he was out there. And Matthew doesn't mention the wild beast and, and Luke doesn't mention the wild beast, but, but Mark does. And why does he do so? Well, I would take note of the fact that he mentions the, the wild beast immediately after mentioning Satan. And so I do agree with those who say that it would suggest that the wild beasts are in partnership and alliance with Satan. In other words, Mark uses this to, to heighten the horror and the danger of our Lord's 40 days in the desolate and untamed uh, Judean wilderness. Again, he's doing battle with Satan on his home field. It is a divine invasion of enemy territory. But then there's another point that should not be neglected here, and that is this. Who is Mark writing to? A Roman audience. When is Mark writing? Around A.D. 65. Who is the emperor at that time? A lunatic named Nero. He reigns from 54 to 68. In 64, he blames the Christians for burning Rome, something that he most likely did himself. And he commences with a very intense persecution of Christians in Rome and in Italy. And in fact, the uh, Roman historian Tacitus wrote in his annals of this period of time, and I quote, they, the Christians, were covered with the hides of what? Wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs. In other words, I think Mark is saying to the church at Rome, Christ knows what you're going through. He's been there. And just as his angels came to his aid, they will sustain you too. They may sustain you through your martyrdom. They may sustain you through your death, but they will be with you. And they will see you through the turmoil. First John chapter 3, verse 8 reminds us, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of of the devil. Now, here's the million-dollar question as we get ready to close. What was Satan up to? 
What was Satan up to in this war in the wilderness? In other words, what was he trying to do? Well, the easy answer is he was trying to defeat the sun. Okay, I think we'd all agree that. He was there to do battle with the sun and defeat the sun. All right? So that, that's, I think, foundational. But we gotta go further than that. In what way was he trying to defeat the sun? Or to say it another way, was he trying to prevent him from receiving his glorious kingdom? Now, be careful. Don't jump too quickly. After all, God has promised him a kingdom. And furthermore, isn't it God's will for all of us to experience health, wealth, and happiness? What they say on TBN. That's what they preach in Houston, Dallas, a number of other places. And if God's desire is for all of us to have health and, and wealth and happiness, would he not want it preeminently for his son? I mean, I would. No, the, the issue is this. What the devil was trying to prevent was the son's suffering. What he was trying to stop was the son's willingness to obey the will of the Father all the way to Calvary. You see, I'm convinced that Satan was at the baptism. And I'm convinced that Satan is a good theologian. In fact, I suspect he's a better theologian than any of us in this room. He, he, he may not uh, follow it, but he understands it. So he hears the Father say, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. He said, Oh, wow. Psalm 2-7, yeah, he's the king, all right. Genesis 22, yeah, I know he loves him. Isaiah 42, he, he's putting those two things. So his, his son is going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah. And then he realizes, oh my goodness, I forgot about Genesis 3.15, where the Bible says that I will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush my head. And how's he going to crush my head? Well, he was familiar with the sacrificial system of Israel. He remembers what took place at Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. And so he now understands the one thing I have got to prevent. You see, you'll remember from the Matthew-Luke account when Satan basically, I think, brings about a vision. He says, here are all the kingdoms of the world. Remember that? And he says to Jesus, I will give you all of this if you will just bow and worship me. In other words, Matthew and Luke make plain, here's the deal. Here's a crown. It's going to be yours. Now, which way will you get it? The easy way, by following the devil, or the hard way, by following the plan and the will of your Father, which includes a cross. And Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew and in Luke that he would indeed take the way of the cross. It's fascinating, isn't it? Mark doesn't record our Lord's victory as does Matthew and Luke. He just simply says, the devil came against him with the wild beast, and angels ministered to him. You say, what do you think is going on? Well, I, I like sports, and so here's what I think is going on. This is round one of a title bout that's going to go 15 rounds. Jesus wins round one, but it's just round one. There'll be two and three and four and five all the way to the 15th round that takes place on a hill called Calvary. In other words, Mark is trying to help us understand that the war in the wilderness was not the end. It was really nothing more than the 
beginning. And so I close tonight by alluding to where I began. God's ways are not our ways, are they? Uh, he does things that often surprise us. He, his ways are full of unexpected twists and, and turns. He, he does things we don't see coming. And yet, once more, I would say to you, when that happens in our lives, as it did in the life of his son, claim the promises of Romans 12, 2, that the ways of God, the will of God, it is good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. Again, to quote my friend Jerry Rankin, God's will is not always safe. But God's will is always best. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what we learn in your word from the baptism and temptation of our Savior. Thank you that it was indeed a declaration of his sonship as well as a declaration of war on Satan, his demons, and his evil empire. And how I thank you that our Savior chose to go the way of the cross to crush the head of the serpent under his foot. And indeed, Paul tells us that the cross indeed accomplished that very thing in Romans 16 and verse 20. And so tonight, we bow before this servant king. We worship him. We love him. We adore him. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for going the hard way that we might be saved. Help us then, Lord, to trust in your will, even when it surprises us, even when we are caught off guard. Help us, Lord, to remember that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, but your ways are good and your ways are perfect. Your Son proves that in his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Therefore, we can trust you as well because you have proven yourself so clearly in your Son. Help us then, Lord, to walk faithfully as he did, bringing honor and glory to your name. For we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.